You're listening to the West Side Podcast, a part of the L.A. International Church of Christ family of churches, worshiping God in L.A. since 1989. Let me just share my screen here. Okay. All right. So I got my uh, PowerPoint in front of me, and then I have... You guys over here in gallery view. I like to see people. It's hard to give a lecture when you can't see the reaction of the people. Well, I see some former students. What's up, Benjamin? <laughs> I see some friends like Thais and Ed, Ed Biggers. Hi, guys. My wife is on here. So if somebody wants to send her a nice welcoming chat, uh, she would appreciate that. Her name is Sunday Dorothy. But it's just, I feel like I'm with uh, friends here. And so thank you for inviting me to this evening. Uh, We'll be talking about the Church of Christ in the 20th century and beyond, all the way up until today. Would you join me in just a brief word of prayer, please? Dear God, I'm just, uh, I'm thankful and I'm honored to be a part of the Westside Church tonight and to talk with them about a little history and as Lord as uh, you've taught us in your word that we can learn so many lessons from history. Father, help us to delve into history and to try to pull out the lessons that are there that we would do well to pay attention to. And Father, help us never to be ignorant of our history. Help us to always be willing to, to see what it has to teach us. Be with us tonight, Lord, as we try to Get our heads around the Church of Christ in the 20th century as we try to maybe extract some lessons for the West Side Church of Christ. Bless us over this period of time tonight. Help us to be learners and help us to pull something out that will strengthen our churches and our lives. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, everybody, I am I'm honored to be here. Kenny, a former student of mine, um, Kenny Uzuchukwu, a good friend of mine. He and I are actually uh, reading a book together, and and uh, we just I was on his uh, master's committee, and I just thought, you know, that's a keeper. That's a good one right there. And so I was honored when Kenny asked if I would come and join you guys for a little history. Um, last week, I, uh, I shared with you kind of the history of the Stone Campbell movement. Remember that, how we talked about Berean, used Berean as an acronym? Well, tonight is a little more specific. Uh, so last last week we talked about kind of the big picture of the Stone-Campbell movement after these guys, Barton Stone and Alexander Campbell. Uh, tonight we're going to get a little more specific as we talk about the Church of Christ. All right, let me just uh, talk about some growth statistics. Are you seeing that okay, Kenny? You seeing that pretty good, uh, the, the slide that says growth statistics? Yeah, it looks great. All right. Okay, so um, just to just to run you through briefly a few moments in the history of the Stone Campbell movement. It's called the Stone Campbell movement because of a famous handshake that actually did not include Campbell, which is uh, kind of funny, kind of ironic. What happened was back in the 1800s, there were a whole bunch of uh, church movements trying to get back to the Bible, trying to unite the Western frontier, trying to bring Christians together. 
they called themselves Christians, some called themselves disciples, some called themselves Church of Christ, some called themselves Christian Church. Well, two of these groups, uh, one was led by Alexander Campbell, one was led by Barton Stone. They merged, actually, in 1832. However, Alexander Campbell wasn't there. Um, so it was Barton Stone and a fellow by the name of Raccoon John Smith. There goes Mark. Uh, Mark and I had a little conversation earlier about this intriguing fellow, Raccoon John Smith, one of the great evangelists of the Church of Christ and of Church of Christ history. So they, they shook hands, and basically Alexander Campbell wasn't real thrilled about it, but the movement took off. And they, a lot of people called it the Restoration Movement. Now, by restoration, they mean that they are going to restore the New Testament model of Christianity. They're going to restore. That's why it's called the Restoration Movement. We're going to try to get back to the Bible. We're going to try to restore the faith of the apostles and the faith of the New Testament. All right? So it began as a small movement, about 22,000 members at this famous handshake in Lexington, Kentucky. But it grew. Boy, this church grew. This movement grew. By 1860, the movement had 200,000. Fifteen years later, in 1875, the movement had 400,000 members. And in the year 1900, at the turn of last century, well over a million members. How would you like to be a part of a movement that is growing that fast? Thumbs up, anyone? I know I would. Wouldn't that be nice? All right. So what I'm going to do in this lecture is I'm going to take you through the decades, a decade at a time. All right. So obviously I'm trying to summarize 120 years here. So have grace on me. But we'll get there. Uh, the main figure of that first decade of the 20th century is a guy by the name of David Lipscomb. Many of you are going to know this guy from Lipscomb University, one of America's great liberal arts universities founded by the Churches of Christ. David Lipscomb was famous for being an editor. Now, if you look at that last line on this slide, it says, Catholics always have their bishops, but the Restoration Movement has its editors. So throughout the 20th century, especially going all the way back to Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone, they had their own journals, but the editors were really the big the big head honchos in the, in the church movements. If you were an editor, you could basically control the message. It would be kind of like owning Twitter or owning Facebook. <laughs> you get to determine who says what. You can not include them if you don't want them to be included. So David Lipscomb was like that. He was the editor of the Gospel Advocate, one of the great journals of the Churches of Christ. But He's, he's gone down in history as largely responsible for the split, the first split that occurred in the Restoration Movement or the Stone-Campbell Movement, okay? Now, uh, guys, I don't want to get bogged down in this, but basically the, the Restoration Movement now has four movements. If you're looking at a picture of me right now, you have the Disciples of Christ. They're officially called the Christian Church Disciples of Christ. You have the Churches of Christ that used to be called the Acapella Church of Christ. You guys call them the Mainline Church of Christ. Okay, that's the group that I grew up in. You also have uh, the ICOC, as you know, International Church of Christ, which basically, uh, I don't want to say split, but it, it began to take a, a, a 
it began to, it wasn't a real clean split, but it kind of began to go away, kind of dovetail from the Acapella Church of the Christ in the late 70s and early 80s, uh, 1970s and 80s. But there's another movement in there called the four C's, the CCCC, the Christian Churches, Church of Christ. They split off from the disciples in 1968. Now, the first split, so we have four movements now in the Restoration uh, tradition. We have four movements now, and with a lot of Christians, okay? But David Lipscomb was largely responsible for the first split, which was between the Disciples of Christ and the Church of Christ. And how this happened was basically the churches were kind of going apart like this, and nobody really knew if they were split or if they were not split. And so, of all things, in 1906, there was a uh, there was a census, the United States Census. And the United States Census went to David Lipscomb and they said, look, are, are you guys, are the disciples one movement or are they two movements? We're hearing different things. And basically David Lipscomb said, where there was one, there are now two. And what he meant by that was the Church of Christ or the Disciples of Christ had now split into two different movements the big issue was instrumental worship. Uh, David Lipscomb did not like instruments to be played in worship. How, however, the other churches, especially in the north, they did like instruments. They liked their organ. And so basically after the Civil War, you had deep animosities between the northern churches, which were rich, and they could afford uh, an organ or a piano. The southern churches were poor. Remember, they were the losers in the Civil War. And they went through about, I mean, the, the southern United States was dirt poor until until the 1940s, till the Second World War. Those southern states were dirt poor. They couldn't afford, uh, they couldn't afford organs or pianos. And so it became a, a matter of pride. And David Lipscomb said, you know, if you're if you're going to have an instrument, you're not part of this movement. Uh, but if you want to be a cappella, you're free to join. And so it became a real litmus test. There were other issues, but this was the main issue: was you had mainly the northern churches, north of the Mason-Dixon line. They were disciples of Christ churches still to this day. They're real strong, like in Indiana. All right, and then you had the southern churches. Okay, is that clear? You following me? All right. If you have a question, write it down. So we're going to have a time for Q&A. All right. Here's the next, uh, ne next slide. So 1906 census. Interestingly, in 1906, the disciples had about a million members. The Church of Christ had 150,000 members. As you probably know now, the Church of Christ is much larger, much larger, like six or seven times larger than the Disciples of Christ. But at that time, the disciples were, you know, seven or eight times larger than the Church of Christ. But uh, nowadays, the Disciples of Christ is a very small movement, as we talked about last week. It has shrunk and shrunk and shrunk. Over the last 10 years, it was cut more than in half in the United States. The Disciples of Christ, unfortunately, are a movement that's really struggling right now. Now, Church of Christ, one thing that the Churches of Christ and not just the Church of Christ, but all the, especially the disciples and the Church of Christ. They established, boy, howdy, they established schools. They established schools. So many colleges, 
universities, preacher training schools, academies, high schools, private schools, the Church of Christ and the Disciples of Christ. This has been one of our greatest fortes is we educate people. We're known for this. Two of uh, our premier ones that occurred back in those early 1900s was the Nashville Bible School, later became known as Lipscomb University. And then you had the Childers Classical Institute, which is now known as Abilene Christian University. The most important person of that first decade of the 20th century would be David Lipscomb. He was a longtime editor. He got to decide whose voice was heard in the movement, in the Church of Christ movement. And he, I mean, he was for a lot of things. But to this day, he's known for a lot of things that he was against. All right. He was against instruments in worship. Uh, he was against missionary societies. In other words, he said, if you're going to have a missionary, the, the church needs to send the missionary. You don't need to join up with another church. I know that seems like kind of an arbitrary thing, but back in those days, that was that was a big fight in Christianity. Uh, he was against women preachers. As you know, the disciples of Christ allowed women preachers to, the ver- to this day. In fact, their general minister and president is a woman in the disciples of Christ. But Church of Christ to this day still uh, does not have women who are in the senior pastor role. You can have women um, teaching, you know, the, they can teach at women's conferences and things like that. But it's very, very rare to have a lead minister or a lead pastor to be a woman. I've heard there's a few, but it's, it's not common. And then the other issue in the Churches of Christ, especially by David Lipscomb, was higher criticism. Now, some of you are saying, what's higher criticism? Basically, this is the German scholarly approach to the Bible where you, uh, you cut apart the Bible and you look at the historicity. It involves things like archaeology, biblical language study. You look at the Bible in a very scientific way and say, you know, did Moses actually split the sea? Did he actually do that? What evidence is there that he actually did this? You know, things like that. David Lipscomb said, don't do that. That's a waste of time. We, we know that the Bible is true, and if you want to try to go out there and disprove it, well, I don't want to have anything to do with you, that kind of attitude. He did not like the higher criticism movement uh, towards the Bible. All right, the, the next decade, the 1910 to 1920, this is interesting because David Lipscomb, David, it's an interesting day for us to be talking about this, friends. Uh, David Lipscomb distrusted the government. He was a committed pacifist. Uh, during World War One, he said, no way, no way. Uh, he said, why? Why would you go and take up arms and kill someone overseas? He said, that doesn't make any sense as a Christian. Jesus tells us explicitly not to do that. He said, what you need to think about is the Bible, the gospel, the church. You don't need to think about all these banner-waving, patriotic, uh, you know, all this uh, war uh, nation versus nation. Forget all that. Focus on your church. Focus on serving the Lord. Don't get all caught up in politics. That was David Lipscomb. Um, and uh, he, he strongly opposed the First World War. In fact, David Lipscomb opposed, uh, he, he opposed voting. He said you shouldn't even vote because if you vote, you're getting overly involved in the political system. He said Christians have no business getting involved in that. Another hot topic was located preachers. You know, back in those days, there was a big debate about should you have a local pastor or should you just 
basically have different men in the congregation preach. Some churches said, look, we don't have located preachers. Our men do the preaching here. We're all capable of preaching the gospel. We don't need some guy to come in here and tell us what the Bible says. We all know what the Bible says. So that was a long disagreement within the churches of Christ. Another big issue that I, you know, it's hard to teach premillennialism. It's a complicated set of beliefs. But basically, there were people in the church, not just in the Church of Christ, but all over Christianity, that said that if we work hard enough and we make the church pure enough, then Christ will come and he'll reign for a thousand years once we have accomplished the goal of worldwide evangelism. So that was called premillennialism. And uh, that, was a, that was a sticky subject. You had a lot of people that were opposed to it. You had a lot of people for it. Now, the person I want to point out as the person of the decade, of course, I get to choose these, but here's the person that I think really deserves more attention. His name was T.B. Larimore. He was a preacher. Boy, he traveled all over the place. He avoided controversy. He said, I don't want to partake in all these, you know, political or non-political discussions. I just want to preach the gospel. I don't want to talk about things that don't make any sense uh, to the common man. I don't want to talk about highbrow theology, biblical criticism. He said, I just want to preach the gospel. And he evangelized people. He went all over the place. In Alabama, he established a, uh, an academy there called Mars Hill. And he came, he eventually ended his career out in California. He came out here and preached for 20 years here in California. I think this deserves a master's thesis or a doctoral dissertation. So somebody who's currently in grad school, take note. I'll be your supervisor if you come to Pepperdine. <laughs> all right, 1920s. Many of you took history in college, maybe a, a good American history class in high school. You know that the 1920s was dominated by the monkey trial. Have any of you heard of the monkey trial? Raise your hand. You've heard of the monkey trial, also known as the Scopes trial. This was a big trial about the teaching of evolution in the public schools. And it would, it took place in Tennessee because interestingly, in those days, it was illegal, illegal to teach evolution in public schools. But this is the court case that turned all that around. After the Scopes trial in 1925, uh, evolution began to be taught in the public schools. And these days, the tables have completely turned. These days, evolution is required to teach in the public schools. And creationism, you're not allowed to teach that, of course, unless you're in a private school or, of course, a home school. Um, this is also a decade where the Sunday school programs really rose up. A lot of people don't realize that the Sunday school movement actually dates to the 1800s. There's a guy named Robert Rakes, R-A-I-K-E-S. Robert Rakes started what's called Sunday school. That seems weird to us because we, none of us are old enough. I mean, we all think that Sunday school is part of church since the times of the Apostle Paul. No. <laughs> Sunday school is a concept that started in the 1800s in London, England, by a guy named Robert Riggs. Another big issue going on in those days was, should you have one cup or should you have many cups at the table? Why, is it, why was this such a big issue? Well, I'll tell you why. It's because Jesus said, you know, take this cup, take this cup. He didn't say, take all these cups. He said, take this cup. And so to the present day, there is still a church, a, a subsect within the Church of the Christ known as, we call them the one-cuppers. Raise your hand if you've heard of the one-cuppers. All right, I see Ed and Mark and 
Kenny, there's a few of you have heard of the One Cuppers. It's a Church of Christ group. Great people. They have the same beliefs as the rest of the Church of Christ, except on this issue. They say you can only have one cup. All right, so it's a fascinating little anecdote in history. Also, the 1920s is when the radio, people began to preach on the radio and uh, began to uh, use technology to broadcast the gospel. The most famous person, not a Church of Christ person, it's actually a Pentecostal minister. How many of you heard of L.A.'s own Amy Semple McPherson? Who's heard of Amy Semple McPherson? She was a female preacher. If you've ever heard of the L.A. Dream Center, that was started by a woman preacher, Pentecostal preacher named Amy Semple McPherson down in Echo Park, that big, massive, historic church. She built that using her radio preaching ministry, and it grew. she grew to be the most popular preacher in America. Yes, that's right. In the 1920s and 30s, the most famous American preacher, yes, was a woman. All right, let's move to the 1930s. The 1930s, of course, we all know this was the terrible uh, depression. And you get the growth of the Church of Christ here. You had something called gospel meetings that became very fashionable. People would go off usually for about two weeks. My granddad was actually a Church of Christ preacher, a rather rather uh, well-known Church of Christ preacher in uh, in New Mexico, where I'm from. His name was Grover Ross, and he would go off on these gospel meetings. I wish we would revive these. Just send a preacher to some some country church somewhere and let him uh, preach every night for two weeks. And it just, you can reach out to the community that way. But it was a big thing that really it caught a lot of attention. And the Churches of Christ grew magnificently. This is also an era because a lot of people were poor. I mean, we think that COVID has rendered a lot of us poor. People were extremely poor during the Great Depression. And we saw some wonderful benevolence by the Churches of Christ. One of the great examples was at Nashville, the Central Church of Christ. I've been there. They built, they had several stories where they built rooms for homeless people. Can you believe that? Wouldn't that be wonderful? Nowadays, we all turn to the politicians. In those days, you didn't turn to the politicians. In those days, you turned to the churches. And you said, we got a bunch of homeless people. And you know what? The churches stepped in the gap. And they said, homeless people? In Nashville, we're going to solve that problem. And churches would build, they would add floors to their church building and put the homeless people in there. You have churches doing medical missions, dental work, hygiene. People, this is why we have Presbyterian hospitals, Methodist hospitals, St. Jude hospitals, Catholic hospitals. It's because this was an era where churches didn't just build homeless place, you know, houses for homeless people. They built hospitals. They would pool all their money together. And this is why I've, I've always said there's no, nothing wrong with being in the church and being wealthy. Use your wealth to, to help the gospel. Use your wealth to push the gospel forward, to bless the society. And so this was an era where some of those wealthy Christians stepped up and said, we're going to make sure that everybody has coal. Everybody for heating, everybody has clothing, and everybody has groceries. We're going to take that upon ourselves. So this was a, a it was a it was a poor era, but it was also a great era where churches came together. Now, one guy I just want to point to is a fellow by the name of Casey Moser. He's a famous preacher. He ended up becoming a professor at my alma mater, which is Lubbock Christian uh, Lubbock Christian University in uh, it used to be called Lubbock Christian College in Lubbock, Texas, in West Texas. But 
K.C. Moser was important because he, he introduced the concept of grace to the Church of Christ. He wrote a little book called The Gist of Romans. And basically, the Church of Christ was pretty legalistic in those days. They said, I mean, they basically said, you work your way to heaven. He came along and he said, look, uh, yes, you got to do works, just like James said, but also there's a tremendous message of grace that is refreshing in the book of Romans and in the teachings of Paul. And he also taught things like the, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, things that Church of Christ people hadn't really heard before. Church of Christ people were used to hearing sermons about, you know, you got to work hard or else you're going to go to hell. And he brought in a, a grace-oriented message. I mean, he didn't cut out works, but he infused the, the, the churches with a message of grace. He got people turned on to the real meaning of the book of Romans and Galatians as well. Another fellow by the name, I, I, uh, kind of the opposite end of the spectrum, was Foy E. Wallace. Foy Wallace, very influential preacher, but he was a firebrand. He was the opposite of Casey Moser. Well, he rose up and he represented the more legalistic side of our movement, and he spent all his time condemning everybody. And one thing, I mean, if, if Foy Wallace mentioned you in a sermon, you were toast, man, you were toast. He would take you down. I mean, Foy E. Wallace was extremely critical in his preaching. And so you did not want to run afoul of Foy E. Wallace. It would kind of be like, uh, you know, you know, ha people trying to besmirch you on Twitter or something. I mean, he was well known. Everybody was talking about him. Everybody was hearing his sermons. And if he labeled you a heretic, I mean, your, your time was up. He would come after people. Let me tell you. Then you have another preacher by the name of G.C. Brewer, and G.C. Brewer argued strongly for located preachers. He said, we need located preachers. We would these days, we would say local pastors, local ministers, local preachers. He said, we, we need these guys. We need a preacher who will, who will uh, cast his lot with a local congregation who will spend years nourishing that congregation. He said, this is good for Christianity. This is good for the church. He also advocated building church buildings. He said, you're only going to institutionalize the church, which is going to make it last longer if you have a located preacher and if you have a church building. It's going to be a stronger, uh, a stronger institution. 1940s, you get into uh, World War II and then the great post-World War II boom. We had an evangelism boom. Pacifism completely got wiped out at the World War II. Basically, if you were a pacifist in World War II, you were considered un-American. And so this is basically where the Church of Christ dropped all of its pacifists, and we've never really recovered a pacifist prophetic voice since. We have very few pacifists in the Church of Christ because we're, all, we're very linked in with uh, nationalism and voting and politics. Our, our movement has gotten real, uh, real politically involved over the years. Um, we also had a great missions movement in these, in these years, few of the names are uh, Otis Gatewood, E.W. McMillan, Ira Rice, Klein Payton went to, went to Italy. Ira Rice went all over uh, Asia, uh, like Malaysia. And, and uh, you know, they, they, these guys, Otis Gatewood, I believe he went to Germany, went to Europe. So you had people just going all over the world spreading the gospel. And I know, I know enough about you guys in the ICOC that you get this, you understand this, you understand the importance of sending people overseas. It's an important part of Christianity. Church of Christ 
you know, really picked up that mantle in the 1940s. And I would say the ICOC has been the best at carrying, uh, carrying that. Now, the, uh, the race issues really, uh, really became a big issue in the 1940s, as it was, and the 1950s, as it was all over America. And basically, this can be described. Now, you guys are going to have an entire lesson on this here in a couple of weeks. But suffice it to say that in the, the black churches of Christ, you basically had two kind of rock star preachers. Okay. One was a good friend of my granddad. His name was Marshall Keeble. He was a very uh, conciliatory man. Marshall Keeble and Walter Scott were the two greatest evangelists in the history of the restoration movement. Walter Scott was one of the early leaders back with Campbell. They say that he baptized up to 30,000 people. And now when people mention the African-American preacher, famous preacher, Marshall Keeble, when they mention him, they say that Marshall Keeble baptized at least 30,000 people. So I think it's safe to say that Marshall Keeble is probably the greatest evangelist in the history of the restoration movement, all four movements. He baptized many, many people. The other end of the spectrum was another famous preacher by the name of G.P. Bowser. But G.P. Bowser, Brother Bowser, he founded the Southwestern Christian College, which is a, an African-American Church of Christ college in, uh, in Texas. Um, forget the, the name of the town down there. Um, somebody pop in here. Put it in the chat. It's, it's, a, it's a, in South Texas. But G.P. Bowser, he basically said, look, we need black journals. We need black college, a black college. We basically need, uh, black churches that, you know, there's a tremendous amount of damage that's been done between black and white relations. And what Bowser said is we need a black network of churches so that we can feel safe, so that, uh, black Christians don't feel intimidated. And so we can be ourselves, keep our traditions alive. All right. And but uh, Marshall Keeble was the opposite of that. He 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 preached in white churches routinely. Uh, white churches loved him because they would host him. Of course, not the prejudiced ones, but the white churches that were open. My granddad used to invite to New Mexico, would invite Marshall Keeble uh, to to give gospel meetings. And there was no preacher. My granddad used to tell me this is before I was a historian. I was a kid. My granddad would tell me he'd say there was a. African-American brother who could preach the gospel like like nobody's business, like we've never heard before. And people would just, as uh, Justin Timberlake would say, they're running like a track star to the altar. How many of you got that? Okay, I think you have to be under 25 to get that, uh, that joke. Um, but Marshall Keeble could preach in such a way that you would run like a track star to go get baptized or to confess the name of Jesus in front of the congregation. He was a great, great preacher, the greatest evangelist our movement's ever seen. So that's going to be discussed at length in two weeks. Another highlight of the 1940s was the establishment of the Christian Chronicle. I just want to put a pitch in here. You should subscribe to it. You don't have to pay anything. It's free. But I always make about a $100 donation or so. But the Christian Chronicle is, a, is the, the Church of Christ international newspaper okay it's it's headed by my good friend eric trigestad so i strongly recommend you get on their website christian chronicle support them tell you what's going on in the church of christ to this day 
1950s, this is where our national prominence takes off, especially by a fellow by the name of Pat Boone, who sold more records than anyone in that era, with one exception. There was one guy that outsold him. You may have heard of him. His name was Elvis Presley. But Elvis Presley and Pat Boone competed. Actually, Pat Boone beat Elvis Presley when it comes to having hits continually in the top 40. Pat Boone has the longest streak in American history for having a song in the top 40. Pat Boone. Some of you I know, if you're under 25, you know who Justin Bieber is. uh, And you know who Chance the Rapper is. But if you're under 25, you have no idea who Pat Boone is. Pat Boone is still alive. He dominated the charts in the mid-20th century. Google him. That's all I could say. Google him. He's one of the, he was a Church of Christ guy, one of the great figures of the 20th century. I'm a big fan of Pat Boone. I went to his house and saw him last year, and uh, or I guess a couple of years now before COVID. Just had a wonderful conversation with him. Uh, sorry, I didn't go to his house. I went to his office downtown in L.A. Uh, me and a student went down there and interviewed him. He's fabulous. All his platinum records all over the walls and everything. The Church of Christ also has something called the Jewel Miller Film Strips. Raise your hand. You know the Jewel Miller Film Strips? All right, Mark. Thank you, Tim. A lot of people came to Christ through the Jewel Miller Film Strips, but who does film strips anymore? Uh, but Jewel Miller, uh, his film strips were a wonderful evangelism tool, basically discussing how to come to Christ. You also get the Herald of Truth radio TV uh, ministry. You also get something called the rise of the non-institutional church. So these are people that said, we don't believe in colleges. We don't believe uh, Church of Christ colleges. We don't believe in Church of Christ orphans homes, uh, et et cetera. Oh, by the way, just to backtrack, I just remembered the name of the uh, town that Southwestern is in. It's called Terrell, Texas. Terrell, T-E-R-R-E-L-L, Terrell, Texas. That's the name of the town where Southwestern is. All right, guys, so as in the 1950s, the Church of Christ is, they are all over the place. You had America's most important um, track star. His name was Bobby Morrow. He won, he cleaned house at the 1956. His idol was Jesse Owens. And then he came along and, and uh, he, he broke all these records and he won three gold medals. Yes, he was a Church of Christ boy. He was actually a student at Abilene Christian University when he won all these Olympic awards. Um, you get Norville Young, who, who comes to Pepperdine, and he changes Pepperdine and makes Pepperdine a nationally respected university. Still to this day, Pepperdine is one of the top 50 universities in America, according to every research institute that studies these things. Uh, Norville Young was the uh, great preacher who preached in uh, uh, Lubbock, Texas, and he came out here. He was a mega church preacher. Came out here and led Pepperdine for several years. Did a great job, fantastic job. Pepperdine really reached national prominence. Um, also, you get the expansion of church buildings. So during the 1950s, you get gymnasiums, fellowship halls, kitchens, etc. added to the church buildings. 1960s. 1960 was an interesting year. A fellow by the name of Carl Spain, a preacher, gave a famous lecture at ACU in 1960. And he basically threw down the gauntlet. And he said to everyone listening to him that night, he said, ACU, 
needs to integrate. It's, it's pastime. They need to allow African-American students, and boy, they did. That lecture, it just resonated all over the South. And uh, ACU said, we got to stop this, uh, th- you know, this racism in, in uh, ACU. And pretty soon uh, you had several African-Americans who signed up. And to this day, there's a strong, rich African-American heritage at ACU. There is even a Carl Spain Center on race studies and spiritual uh, action led by an African-American brother of mine named Jerry Taylor, a great preacher in the Church of Christ. 60s is also the rise of the preacher training schools. Um, you had a program called the Herald of Truth program, which introduced a fellow by the name of Batchel Barrett Baxter, introduced a softer type of preaching. Instead of the, you know, the Foy Wallace type of preaching where you condemn heresy and so forth, it was softer, it was more grace-oriented. This was uh, Batchel Barrett Baxter who had national uh, prominence. And he introduced this softer style, which I use today, as you probably noticed. Uh, but you'll still hear some Foy E. Wallace type, some firebrand preachers out there. I prefer the softer uh, Baxter approach. Um, but you, this was also in 1960s. Uh, it's also the Church of Christ moves to the right, and it becomes more of a conservative type of church uh, politically, partly because of JFK, because they didn't like the fact that JFK was a Catholic and as you guys know, today we have our second Catholic uh, American president. Jo- Joseph Biden is this, only the second Catholic um, to be president of the United States. But the, the, a lot of, back in those days, not today, but back in those days, Church of Christ was very suspicious of Catholics. And so, um, I mean, there's still some of that, but it's, it's nowhere near like it was in the 60s. But this caused a lot of, a lot of people to kind of shift, a lot of Church of Christ people to shift to the, to the more – right side of things. All right, the 1970s. This is really the zenith of our movement. The Church of Christ, it, it hits its apex and begins to descend in terms of American numbers. Now, globally, the Church of Christ is still doing fine as we, we've established churches all over the world in Africa, for example, India. But it, it, hits its, it, it hits its zenith and it begins to decline in the 70s. It's also the rise of the lectureships, especially at the universities. You get these workshops. Um, you get professional youth ministries take off. And I have the great honor of having served with both of these men, Big Don Williams, who actually was at Pepperdine for years. But I was a youth minister in Texas in the same church where Big Don Williams was the college minister back in the 90s. He and I became close friends. Then also a fellow by the name of Bobby Heiss. He was deaf, completely deaf. But he was also one of the first youth ministers in the Churches of Christ and started this thing that we call youth ministry. Bobby Heiss is a good friend of mine. I actually did my, there in uh, Lubbock, Texas, I did my uh, ministerial internship with Bobby Heiss. One of the great, uh, one of the great things in my life, being able to spend a year shadowing Bobby Heiss, learning how to do youth ministry. And I became a youth minister right after that because I got to be mentored by these two amazing and it's just a coincidence that I happened to be in Lubbock happened to be at Abilene when those two guys were there and I trained under both of them in how to set up a youth ministry because they were the first two to do it in the churches of Christ uh, world bible school started in that era which is a, a big time thing I don't know if any of you guys know about that but this is basically a correspondence course 
where you evangelize people all over the world through the mail. Nowadays, it's done through the Internet. You also have the church growth movement that was formed by Ira North. You can look him on the Internet. He, he wrote some good books, and he was really kind of the point man for how do you expand a church. And uh, he, he was the point man for that movement in the Church of Christ. 1980s, you get Mac Lyon had a very famous television program called In Search of the Lord's Way. became very popular. Christian Chronicle began to publish a lot of articles about Africa and India and Asia. Christian Chronicle made us realize, that the newspaper, the Christian Chronicle, made us realize, wow, the Church of Christ may be shrinking in America, slightly declining. It wasn't like collapsing, but slight declines. But globally, the Church of Christ is mushrooming. And the Christian Chronicle brought that to our attention in the 1980s. You have a program called Let's Start Talking, which you would travel to some country and you would use the Bible to teach people English. So this was a very popular, pro, uh, very pro- popular ministry that's still in existence to the present day. It's based in Dallas, Texas. You have the rise of the ICOC, International Church of Christ. It rose up in Florida. Then it became real popular in Boston. Uh, under a fellow by the name of Kip McKean. And then uh, he and others moved out to Los Angeles, where the movement really took off. And you guys are the children of all this. Is it, history gets fun when you start popping up in it. You know, that's where history gets fun. When you start saying, my granddad was there, or I remember that, that's where history starts to get engaging. And as you guys know, the ICOC and the Churches of Christ had a split, but... I'm hopeful that I'm going to be one of the preachers that tries to bend these movements back together. I'm trying. I'm working at it. So God be with us as we try to repair this this breakage that happened in our movement. Join with me, please. Chuka, I see. I, I hope, Chuka, I hope you're with me. Are you with me, Chuka? Amen, brother. Let's try to knock down these walls and let's try to bring these movements back together again. Goodness gracious, I think we can do it. It's only been, I mean, it hasn't been that long, guys. It's like in the ni- in the 80s when it really split. We can bring this back together. The 1980s is also a, a big time of, uh, you have three major figures in the Church of Christ in the 1980s. You have Tom Albright, who ended up being uh, the chairman of, of the religion division here at Pepperdine. And Tom Albright was just a, an institution himself. He just died just a few, just a couple months ago. You also had Rubel Shelley, who was a, a famous preacher. He ended up being the president of Rochester College. I know several of you have gotten your master's at Rochester. Uh, Rubel Shelley was the president there for years. Then, of course, you get Max Lucado, who becomes the best-selling author in American Christianity during the 1980s and 90s. You also get the rise of some mega churches. So, for example, the Hills Church. Back in those days, it was called Richland Hills Church of Christ in, in uh, Fort Worth, Texas area. Uh, you also get different programs of training children, like LTC, Leadership Training for Christ. You also get Lads to Leaders. I don't know if you guys have ever participated in these, but they're basically like tournaments. And you, you train kids, and they go and compete, like memorizing the Bible and, you know, things like that. If you guys aren't involved in that, be good to take note of this. Uh, you can ask Kenny for my PowerPoint, and uh, you can look these up on the web and contact them. Say, you know what, we're ICOC, but we have a lot more in common with you then we don't have in common with you. Let us bring a van load of kids to participate, and they will open the door for you.
1990s, Max Locato just becomes huge. I was reading all of his books. He had about a book a year, if not more. But he went extremely big time. He passed at a church in uh, San Antonio, Texas, and he started something that's happening more and more. People drop the of Christ from their churches. So he had a church. He has. He's still the pastor there. It's called Oak Hills Church of Christ. He dropped the of Christ. It's called Oak Hills Church. Uh, a lot of churches of Christ are doing that because the Church of Christ is now known basically as a denomination. And so we're always trying to tell people we're not a denomination. So one way to do that is to drop of Christ so people don't know. <laughs> but that started a movement. Um, Church of Christ started to join with the larger evangelical movement in the 1990s. So, for example, Churches of Christ all over America went to the Promise Keepers movement, which is basically a huge gathering of men to praise God. You also get a fellow by the name of F. Lagard Smith, a famous law professor at Pepperdine, and he became an outspoken voice for, uh, for Church of Christ conservatism. He basically said, don't get swept up in all these liberal movements, liberal Bible studies, uh, you, know, every, you know, all these liberal political movements. He said, you need to stick to the Bible. Don't get carried away. Make sure that what you believe matches with the Bible. And he wrote a very popular, or I, he didn't write the Bible, but he, he edited a very popular Bible called the Daily Bible, which basically divided the Bible up into 365 readings per year, and it has sold a ton. You also get uh, the rise of the prominent historians. Now, guys, I can't emphasize to you, guys and gals, sorry, I don't mean to be uh, gender biased here, guys and gals, um, this really touches my life. So you have the rise of the great Church of Christ historians, Everett Ferguson, who taught early church history, Doug Foster, who taught uh, Stone Campbell movement, Leonard Allen, who teaches modern Christianity, and Richard Hughes, who taught American Christianity. Let me tell you, this is where history gets fun. Everett Ferguson was my church history professor at Abilene. I ended up being a church history professor. Doug Foster and Leonard Allen were my supervisors at Abilene. Doug Foster taught me restoration movement. Leonard Allen taught me Christian theology and church history, along with Everett Ferguson. These were my mentors. These guys have degrees from places like Vanderbilt, Harvard, etc. You also get Richard Hughes, which uh, Richard Hughes is, um, nowadays he's at Lipscomb, but actually he's my predecessor at Pepperdine. He was Pepperdine's church historian for several years. And when he left, uh, I love Richard Hughes, but Richard, let me just say I'm thankful if you're out there. I'm thankful you moved to Lipscomb so I could get a job. Thank you, Richard. And so I'm teaching church history here at Pepperdine, and I'm grateful. I thank God every day that I was counted worthy enough to come to Pepperdine, this amazing university, and I get to teach just what I'm teaching you tonight, church history. I love it. It's contagious, I hope. I hope you're feeling it. But this is what I do. This is my life's calling. I preach on Sundays. I pastor people. But Monday through Friday, I'm teaching church history. The other thing we have in the 1990s was explosive church growth in Africa. Boom. I mean, this is the epicenter of Christianity globally today. There are more Christians in Africa than any continent in the world. you know that? Did you know there's more Christians in Africa than anywhere in the world today, even more than in Latin America, more than in the United States. 
the continent of Africa is the new epicenter of Christianity. And so we get into 20, uh, 2000 to 2021. Church of Christ is at a crossroads. Um, we are tr- struggling. You know, what do we believe? How are we going to go? Where are we going to go from here? We're at a crossroads. Um, you get mega churches, which have happened during these last 20 years. You have the Church of Christ universities who have really grown to be clearly the most important place for the Church of Christ ideas, and they filter down to the congregations. But that wasn't always the case. It used to be journals. It was preachers. It was gospel meetings. Today, and then for a while, it was the workshops. Today, it's the Church of Christ universities. That is the the most important place for the trends and the beliefs that are happening in the Church of Christ, and they trickle down to the to the masses, as it were. There's also been a shift in the Churches of Christ more to open-mindedness. We're not exclusively associated with the right anymore. Church of Christ nowadays is, I would say, basically half on the right uh, politically, half on the left. Um, it's you can't really say Church of Christ is a right, you know. Republican conservative movement anymore. It's not like that these days. It's more complicated than that. We have in a slight decline and we're arguing about things like women preachers. There's some people that say we need women pastors yesterday. We got some people saying we need uh, instruments in worship. We need to unpack race issues. We need to unpack LGBTQ uh, issues. So these are the hot topics going on today in the mainline churches of Christ. I don't know if these issues are being kicked around in the ICLC. I imagine so, to some extent. My final slide tonight, folks, and we're going to start doing some Q&A. Here's the membership, Church of Christ, uh, this mainline Church of Christ. 1.3 million in North America, 1.3 million in Africa, unknown numbers in India. Uh, It's hard to count in India, trust me. India is my primary research area, and it's just very difficult to come up with any sort of uh, verifiable numbers. Uh, about 20,000 in Europe and about 100,000 in Latin America, mainly in uh, Central America. So I thank you, thank you for your time. I went a little over, but uh, I really appreciate your attentiveness. The people that I was seeing on my screen seem to be paying attention. I don't think I saw any yawns. I saw lots of thumbs up. God bless you. I appreciate that. So hit me with your questions. I think Kenny is going to... Uh, Mitigate here. Dr. Dowdy, that was awesome to uh, just listen, learn uh, about sort of our, our roots that the ICOC came from. Um, you know, we, we had Nick Zola come and preach to us uh, last year from Pepperdine, and uh, he's got some roots in the ICOC, and it's, it's just great to hear from you. And, of course, God loves, you know, John. Uh, he says, you know, that we would all be one, right? That his prayers that we would be one. So we're all praying for, for direction there. We've got more questions and I think we're going to be able to get through guys. We've got tons of questions came in. So I'm going to basically go through them, uh, how they came in, uh, with the first ones. And then if any were grouped together, I'll try to group it together. So uh, the first one that came in and it was also grouped with another is, uh, regarding the, uh, how involved was the, the, Church of Christ in the Civil Rights Movement, and maybe you could speak to that, uh, and you know why they were, or why not. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, first of all, I want to say that I feel like uh, I feel foolish because I it occurred to me about Terrell, Texas, and I just looked at the chat, 
and like 26 people said, Terrell, Texas, Terrell, Texas. So, uh, yeah. Now, about the civil rights movement. Okay, so my predecessor here at Pepperdine, Richard Hughes, he experienced, uh, he has, I've heard him lecture about this. He just has shame. He says, he basically says, I don't know why, but we in the Church of Christ did not engage. He just says we did not engage. I think I know why, because I think that the Church of Christ made a concerted effort around the time of Kennedy to join up with conservative politics. And a lot of the civil rights movement and marches and stuff was closely more uh, attuned with the more liberal politics. And so Church of Christ tended to be the conservative end of the spectrum. And they looked at all the marches and stuff as unnecessary. Now, that's not to say, that's not to say that the Church of Christ was uh, just a bunch of racists. Because keep in mind, uh, the, the Church of Christ colleges, such as ACU, this is when they opened up. It's this same era. It's just they had a different way of engaging the civil rights issue. There was not just one way to, there was not just one way to engage the civil rights issue, just like today. So some people, for example, let's take Black Lives Matter. Some people say to, uh, some people will say, in order to engage Black Lives Matter and that movement, you know, the, the movement for justice and, and, uh, and equity and so forth, you need to be out there marching. You need to be out on the street. There are some people that say, no, that's not how I'm going to do it. I'm I'm all in. I'm I I want um, African Americans to have all the same rights and privileges as whites and Asians and everyone else. I want African Americans. To have, so there's some people that are for African Americans, but they're not for the public demonstrations and the marching. So we got to get that straight in our heads that just because you express yourself in solidarity one way doesn't mean you have to express yourself in solidarity a different way. I think this is why a lot of us in the churches are speaking past each other. Some people are not comfortable with the, uh, you know, staging the, you know, the protests and so forth. Some people aren't, a, some people would rather engage, you know, privately helping an African-American family uh, send their kids to college, for example. I know people who have done that. I know people that have, uh, you know, I know some people that engage African-American churches by finding ways to help. So there are other ways to engage other than public demonstrations. And so let us not condemn people that aren't marching. Let us realize maybe they're helping in other ways. And so I think this this is also helpful in understanding what was going on in the 60s. You know, with that, a couple other questions came in about just uh, as you talked about integrated churches. Uh, I know the university, ACU, was integrated in the 60s. But, um, you know, integrated churches, um, what, what's the history of that in the, in the Church of Christ, traditional Church of Christ? Well, the, the history of the, uh, of the black church is not unique to the Church of Christ. The Church of Christ carries the same pattern as the Methodists as the, uh, you know, the Episcopals, um, you know, AME, you know, the Assemblies of God, the Assemblies of God split. You had the 
uh, Church of God in Christ, the Kojic churches, which are black churches. Then you have the white churches in the Pentecostal movement that are the uh, Assemblies of God. So you, they they all split. So it 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 doesn't make sense to say why did the Church of Christ split into black churches and white churches? It, it that doesn't make sense. The question is why did all of Christianity split into black and white churches? And there's a lot of research on this these days. I've done some of this research myself. Basically, there are there are people, and I don't mean it's this is not a black thing. This is not an African American thing. This is an ethnic thing. So there are Spanish churches. They don't want to speak English in church. They want to speak Spanish. And so if you go to that church, it's going to be Spanish speakers. Okay? It's going to be uh, Latinx people, Latino people. All right? Same thing with Korean churches. A lot of people say, how come the Koreans all just get together and have Korean churches? Well, there's an ethnicity thing. They they share culture. This goes on with African-American churches. They have that shared history that goes back into the difficult d- days of, of Christianity in America where black churches weren't welcome into white churches. And so black churches are comfortable. Uh, you have Armenian churches. Okay? You can go to Armenian churches that are for Armenians. And this is, this is not a unique thing to one ethnicity. This is a, now some people will say, well, this is a problem. Well, it depends on who you ask. If you go to a Latino church and say, you guys need to stop being Latino. You guys need to have more ethnicities here. You need to have more languages here. Stop all this Latino stuff. That's not fair. I mean, people, you've you got to give the local congregation autonomy to make its own decisions. A lot of black churches have made the decision we want to we want to worship as a black church. All right, so different people groups make that. Now you have, you do have some churches like the one I'm looking at right now, West Side, which I think is beautiful, uh, where you have about equal. I mean, as I just kind of scroll through here, it's about equal with African American brothers and sisters, uh, Caucasian brothers and sisters, Asian brothers and sisters, Hispanic brothers and sisters, probably some. Uh, you know, South Asian, probably some Native American, um, Polynesian, you know. I think that's beautiful. But some people want to worship more with uh, kind of an ethnic approach to Christianity. And I think you you got to give them that right. You have to give them that right. I'm not going to condemn an Armenian church and say, you guys are all Armenians. You must be racists. I don't want to say that. It They can do what they want. They can do what they want. Now, you and me, West Side and me. We prefer to do it this way, where there's no ethnic component. It's, everything's just kind of wide open. But other churches like to do it differently. We got We can't condemn them for that. About this, we had quite a few other questions I want to get to. Uh, the women issue came up quite a bit, and um, uh, Naomi asked, uh, "What was the foundation for the divide between women's preaching? Why did the disciples of Christ allow it, uh, and, and was it allowed throughout the church before the split?" Yeah, you, yes, there are, there are some women preachers. They're kind of rare, but there are some women preachers in the Disciples of Christ in the late 1800s. So the Disciples of Christ started doing this very early on. You know where it began? It kind of began in the mission field. You had some women who would go overseas alone. You had lots of single women missionaries. In fact, one scholar who's very respected said that there was a time in the uh, late 1800s and early 1900s, 
that the majority of missionaries were actually women. And a bunch of those women were basically women that wanted to be preachers, but they couldn't preach in America. So they would go into missions where they could preach. <laughs> you know, you go to China, you learn the Chinese language, you can actually plant churches as a woman in those places. That's why, uh, you know, churches outside of America, the mission churches, as they were known, they were much more amenable to women leadership because they didn't have the history, um, you know, that, that we had in America, which was pretty much uh, a male, you know, male preachers. But the disciples of Christ, as I understand it today, they have far more women in the seminary than men. In fact, you'll find this interesting. It's about the around the year 2005, American seminaries, American seminaries, so this is graduate theological education, had more women than men, a, a pattern that continues to the present day. More women are training for ministry than, you know, higher education ministry. More women are training than than men are training. And uh, Pepperdine bears this out in the religion division. We have, um, and part of it is just basic demographics. Nowadays, you know, there's far more women in universities. So Pepperdine really struggles here to get enough men in uh, at Pepperdine. It's a, it's a problem that a lot of people don't know about, but you take any uh, college or university pretty much, with the exception of maybe military colleges, you know, like uh, Air Force Academies or something. But you have um, 60-something percent will be females, and usually it's 30 to 40 percent will be males. So uh, really the tables have turned. But back to the question, why did – so if I'm not understanding, why – I mean, let me see if I get the question straight. Why did disciples start having women preachers and the Church of Christ did not have women preachers? Well, the the the, the short answer is – the disciples took the more progressive and liberal interpretation of virtually every issue. The churches of Christ took the more conservative position on virtually every issue. As you guys know, there are Bible passages that, that support this way. There are Bible passages that support that way. Some say there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. You know, so Some people use that to support women preachers. And, of course, the Church of Christ has always kind of stuck with the Paul's teachings where he says, you know, uh, I, I permit not a woman to preach or teach. I have authority over men. So uh, so it's basically a liberal conservative divide that continues to the present day. Yeah, I know there were other questions regarding that. And that is a big you mentioned, uh, is that being explored? And actually, yes, uh, a number of our professors and teachers uh, put together an extensive paper on uh, gender in the Bible. And just for the West Side to know. We will be going through a, a workshop on, on that in May, a thorough workshop on these issues in May. Um, so stay tuned and be reading up on it yourself. Uh, our group has been pretty progressive in that women are doing almost everything in our church services. Um, and so we'll, we'll talk more theologically how we're handling some of the scriptures and a lot of the, the, the best thinking on that. But thank you, Dr. Dowdy, um, for hitting that issue. Um, one question came in. Can you please describe the current process of becoming a Christian in the mainline, which we call it the mainline. You guys call it the mainstream uh, Church of Christ. Um, and what are some of the lessons learned in teaching someone how to be a Christian? Well, the old, the old way that Walter Scott taught us was hear, believe, 
repent, confess, and be baptized. Ed, do I have the right order there? Ed Biggers? Yeah, okay. <laughs> you hear the gospel. You believe the gospel. You, you uh, repent of your sins. You confess the name of Jesus. And you get baptized for the remission of sins. That's really big to uh, Church of Christ. We say you get baptized for the forgiveness of sins and for the indwelling gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's, that's what we teach. We, we don't make it very complicated, I'll tell you. We, we don't baptize infants. Um, but we say that we basically look at Acts 2.38. We look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. You know, if somebody is ready to hear the gospel, believe it, um, repent of their sins that they've been committing, confess the Lord Jesus as Lord of all, and get immersed. We don't accept sprinkling as a form of baptism, but to get it immersed, yeah, it's it's quite simple, quite straightforward. I'm I'm in, I'm in uh, I'm curious, Steve. Just in a, in a nutshell, are you guys basically the same place where we are? I'm in uh, I'm curious, Steve. Just in a, in a nutshell, are you guys basically the same place where we are? Yeah, our all our teachings are those are rooted in in, in hear, believe, repent, confess, and get baptized. We go through our study series. Uh, we'll talk about it next week. We're going to do the whole history of the ICOC. We have Kay McKean, everybody who. Uh, her husband, uh, Randy and her used to lead the Boston church for many, many years and been a part of it. So yeah, she's a teacher, appointed teacher in the ICOC fellowship. But yeah, it's similar. Uh, repentance is the area we really drill down into doctrinally to talk about this, the mission, the mission of disciple making. And you have to really give your life to the mission of disciple making to, to really have repented. You can't, it can't just be stopping the bad. It's starting the good is, is, is what lordship um and, and we do quite a lot on disciple making and as part of repentance so that and it's, but other than that we teach the hear believe repent same thing get back okay great yeah that, that that's helpful thank you um okay a couple other questions um i noticed you mentioned this in a different way but does the church of christ use the evangelist title for preachers or for church builders or, or are they just called ministers and, and why are we use not? we use a plethora of names? Yeah, evangelist is used. Uh, evangelist is often used. Minister is often used. We don't use pastor that much, but I like the word pastor. So you'll find me using it, but it's not real common in the churches of Christ to use the word pastor. It's more of a recent thing. I think the word pastor is important because of pastoral care, um, and also I'm ordained in the disciples of Christ. When I was living in Canada, I became ordained in the disciples, and they used the word pastor. And so pastor is a natural word for me. I like the word because it means I'm not just going to preach. I'm not just going to evangelize. I'm going to be here for counseling. I'm going to be here for you and your family as your located pastor. I'm going to be a person that you can trust. You can trust my wife. We're here for you. I'm here to in, engage myself in the healing of souls. It's a privilege, in my view, to be not just an evangelist, not to be just a preacher, but also to be a pastor of a congregation. That's important for me. And I, I pastor a church in Pasadena, a small, uh, mainly African-American church, which has been one of the privileges of my life to get to know some uh African-American brothers and sisters since the year 2007. And um, I think they would testify that I'm just not preaching to them. I'm also there to help them in, in their lives, however I can. And, of course, pastors 
need help too. So not only do I offer myself, but I, uh, I need my congregation to minister to me as well. So I just like that, that, uh, that understanding of a person who's deeply rooted amongst God's people in a local congregation. Okay, uh, Ray has asked the question, do you think it's a good thing that we're not a pacifist thinking movement or the, the, um, the Church of Christ? Um, do you think it's uh, the safe thing or, um, P- or PC thing to be tied and invested in political discourse in these modern times? Let me put it this way. I think it's a shame that we don't have any pacifists anymore, hardly. I think we need that voice. Now, somebody may say, well, what if some crazy man jumps in your window and he's going to, well, you know, that's a little, you know, if a crazy man jumps in your window and he's got a gun and he's going to kill your children, I've heard that argument for years. Um, I've never had a crazy man jump through my window with a gun and pointed at my children. But if a crazy man, if a crazy man jumped into my window and uh, pulled a gun on my kids, uh, I'd probably, you know, do what I had to do to help the situation. Uh, Leo Tolstoy, famous pacifist, he said, well, the solution is not always to put a bullet in his head. Maybe there's another solution other than killing the potential killer. Maybe there's another solution. It's a complicated issue, but I do know what Jesus said. You know what Jesus said. Should The question is, should we regard Jesus on this? Because what we tend to do is we tend to say, Jesus wasn't really talking about this or that. I don't know what Jesus was or was not talking about. Jesus does seem to be pretty merciful with the centurion. So, in other words, Jesus doesn't condemn the fact that the centurion was uh, was bearing arms. But we do get a pretty strong sense that Jesus, I, I, I think we can certainly say, he leaned towards a pacifist position. Um, now, the where that all changes with Augustine in the early 400s. Augustine came along and said, uh, Christianity is now the, the national religion. So we need to be able to defend ourselves against other empires. And that's really where we cross the Rubicon into, uh, you know, the complete right to bear arms and, and, and so, and to protect ourselves and kill before we get killed. Um, but there's tension on this issue. And I think at least, at least we need to hear the pacifist voice, like people like David Lipscomb. At least we need a few prophets out there who are willing to, to, to speak that word of, uh, you know, of Jesus. With Lipscomb being a pacifist and really anti-political, uh, you mentioned that uh, the Church of Christ has become more political recently. Uh, would you say the political bent of the Churches of Christ today aligns with the current American evangelical Christianity community, conservative, pro-Trump, strong Republican, or is it more just generally politically engaged, regardless of party? Tim was asking. Yeah, um, that's, I mean, you know, I'm a statistician, and so that's hard to measure. Um, I mean, I, I can tell you that the, um, the the better part of our history, we were clearly identified, the Church of Christ, with the conservatives. That has come into question in, in recent years. And so, for example, the Churches of Christ here in uh California, they'd, they'd be much more on the on the progressive side of things. Um, uh, uh, sorry, Steve, what was the second part of your question? Yeah, basically that. Like, do you know which? Do we lean into the current American evangelical or? Oh or, yes. Uh, or are we more right? Like, yeah. 
in your opinion? Yeah, I I would say that um, I, I would say churches of Christ are let, let me put it this way more or less more or less the the majority of the churches of Christ more or less are uh, attached to the Amer- American evangelical movement. Now keep this in mind: the Church of Christ, unlike the ICOC, Church of Christ has never been organized. We don't have a pyramidal structure at all. And this is something that ICOC people, we, we don't really understand each other very well. Like in the Disciples of Christ, you have a president, and then you have a pyramid structure. The ICOC, for most of its history, had a pyramid structure. Uh, the churches of Christ have just never had that. You've ne- we've never had any kind of structure. All you have is local elders. That's the... That, that's our structure. So we've never had any way of saying, you know, what does the Church of Christ feel on this? So that's why you, it's hard for me to answer that. It would kind of depend on the congregation. But if you're asking for statistics, I would say more or less, I think the majority of America's Church of Christ congregations, which tend to be located in America's south, Oklahoma, Arkansas, uh, Texas is the big one, Tennessee. These are our four big states, Okay. Oklahoma, Arkansas, Texas, and uh, what was the other one? And Tennessee. The, the, these are the four big Church of Christ states. They're southern states. They're southern states. We do have a number of other questions that you might enjoy listening to. Um, okay, so one of them has to do to, with this idea of unity. So, Dr. Dowdy, um, several people asked regarding that, and – the question was, what do you see as the primary places of divergence between uh, the, CC, uh, the Church of Christ mainstream and the ICOC that would need to be reconciled for churches to merge again? Yeah, well, I, first of all, I think that we got to get past this notion. This is fundamental, Steve, and it's something that both sides don't understand. We've got to get beyond the idea that if you're a member of the Church of Christ, you need to convert and join the ICOC or vice versa. If I'm in the Church of Christ, you need to come out of the ICOC, leave that group and join the true Church of Christ. I think that's nonsense. And both, both sides have to stop that because that's what's preventing unity is when people say, oh, are you Church of Christ? Well, why don't you leave that behind, quit the Church of Christ, leave that, abandon that, and convert into the ICOC? You see what I'm saying? It 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 makes people uh, it makes people feel that the years that they were in the the Church of Christ or vice versa in the ICOC were basically heretical years. That those years were kind of not true. They were off base. They were less than. So I think we in the ICO, uh, we in the Church of Christ and those in the ICLC have to say, you don't have to convert and join our movement. We're the same movement. There's no conversion here. We're the same movement. We, we dovetailed, but we're the same. And I'll tell you, Pepperdine and the Church of Christ in general has been very gracious. If you're ICOC and you want to come to Pepperdine, you will get the Church of Christ Scholarship. We consider ICOC people fully, not partially, fully 
members of the Church of Christ. Now, I can't speak if it goes the other way. I don't know enough about this situation from the ICOC vantage point, but I hope that the ICOC can avoid this idea of, like, like okay, let's say uh, a Church of Christ person wants to pledge membership with an ICOC congregation. They shouldn't have to, you know, go through a conversion process um, because that basically declares the Church of Christ to be not sufficiently Christian. So therein, to me, therein lies the real rub, is that, that issue. Now, there's other issues that um, you guys tend to hire for your, for your professional ministers. You tend to hire couples. I don't think any Church of not a lot of Church of Christ people are going to get upset about that. Instruments. I think most Church of Christ people realize this is not a biblical issue. This is a tradition issue. So I think a lot of those issues can be sort of worked out. But the one where they're calling each other's true Christianity into question, I think that's a critical and unfortunate mistake that we make on both sides. Okay, that's 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 a deep question of, you know, I would say that normally there's some kind of doctrinal component and the Church of Christ has a commitment to what it means to be a true Christian based upon correct doctrine. And so I think, you know, our, our stance would be if people move into our ministry, we would want to understand their, their foundational faith and, and, and their life before we would add them to the ministry. We'd never reconvert them if they were, but there's a time of concern for how, how their Christianity has gone and were they formed biblically. So that's the question. We have added quite a few members from Church of Christ. You just add them to the membership. But we do take the time to have a discussion before we add them. We don't, we don't cast judgment on their salvation, but we do take the time to evaluate, are they willing to join the mission of the church before we add them to the membership? So I think there's some commonality on both sides. Obviously, thank you for your graciousness with our ICOC students. My own daughter applied, so I'm grateful uh, for how much you guys have accepted. Our club is just doing phenomenal. Uh, we love it. And we have a dream to raise up, you know, missionaries from the students at Pepperdine. And, and certainly, so I think there, I think God is certainly creating unity here, Dr. Dowardy. And we're looking for um, the wisdom of how to do it right. So thank you for that. Um, more questions came in on some different topics as well, but I did want to bring this up. It relates slightly. Chuka asked this. He said, um, were there any simultaneous international restoration or Bible-centered movements happening outside of the United States that per, uh, perhaps ultimately converged into the United States restoration and movement of churches? Or was the restoration primarily attributed to the U.S. and spread through the rest of the world with no mergers or acquisitions internationally? Uh, it's a good question. I have done some research on this, so uh, whoever asked that um Chuka, was that Chuka's question or? Yeah. Um, you can reach out to me. I've published a couple articles on this, but basically where it all began was a fellow by the name of John Glass in, in, uh, in Scotland. Uh, 16 and 1700s, late 1600s, early 1700s. John Glass. Then the next wave was in, was also in Scotland and in England. It was a, a movement uh, by the Haldane brothers. Robert Haldane, H-A-L-D-A-N-E, the Haldanes. They were also kind of back to the Bible, way ahead of their time, uh, just 
Christians only, not the only Christians, non-denominational stuff. And interestingly, Alexander Campbell knew these guys when he was in the British Isles. You know, Alexander comes from Northern Ireland, but he studied at University of Glasgow. He met some of these Haldane preachers. And so, but I would say the fount, the fountain of it is a guy by the name of John Glass. You can, you can Google him. He's a clergyman. Uh, sometimes it's spelled G-L-A-S. Sometimes it's spelled G-L-A-S-S. Uh, but I have gone over to, um, it's called Dundee, Dundee, like Crocodile Dundee. It's D-U-N-D-E, not two E's, but one E, D-U-N-D-E. John Glass started a Back to the Bible restoration movement in Dundee, Scotland. Now, this is interesting, though. It didn't occur to him that you should baptize believers. He still thought you should baptize babies. It was the Haldanes that started baptizing believers. But this all goes back to the basically the 1700s. And Campbell popularized it for an American audience. And it really took off. A related question came in um, regarding... Uh, you talked about the mega church in Oak Hills, the Oak Hills Christian Church by Max Lucado. And the question is, is it still considered a church of Christ generally? As their website has doctrinal statements, they believe baptism is a sacrament, an outward sign of an inward commitment. And wondering, does that align with, you know, mainstream church of Christ, uh, that movement? Yeah, you know, the, the, the church of Christ, as I said, we have no hierarchy. So the Churches of Christ, surprisingly, there's a bunch of Churches of Christ that think that Max Lucado's gone too far, which I don't know why you would think that. Um, if you hear Max Lucado preach, I've been to his church in San Antonio several times. He preaches the gospel just like we would hear it in the Church of Christ. Now, he knows how to communicate it for a larger audience. He knows how to communicate. He's a great communicator, unlike almost anything we've seen in the Churches of Christ. He knows how to communicate on a mass level. But in my humble opinion, he preaches the gospel. Now, most Church of Christ people, I think, would say, we're very proud of Max. He went to ACU. He was a Church of Christ missionary to Brazil. Then he came out of the mission field and moved to San Antonio. And the dude just had the Midas touch. I mean, he established this church, and it just ballooned. Kaboom. And pretty soon he's got a uh, an international ministry like nobody's business. But I've never heard Max preach anything other than the tried and true uh, biblical gospel uh, that that I think Steve and, and the rest of these members, I, I think you guys would say, wow, I, I don't see anything fishy here. This guy's preaching the, he's preaching the truth. Of course, believer's baptism, you know, true walk with Christ, discipleship. And if you want to talk about evangelism, try to match Max Lucado's evangelism. Just try. <laughs> Okay, yeah, he's very popular, and their church is, is quite large. question I have is, uh, a question came in from uh, Karen Shaw. How does the Church of Christ define discipleship, and how do you implement it? We're, we're a back-to-the-Bible movement, and so we don't have kind of pat answers. We just search the scriptures, and so that's how we would uh, define the, you know, the, the idea of discipleship. Now, like everyone's definition of discipleship, it's subjective. Some people are say, some people will say, I can more or less live a secular life. I can struggle with my sins and, and, you know, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying. God's grace, it covers me. 
then there's more people that are there's other people that are more legalistic in and uh, straight laced and you know the the road is narrow the gate is 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 small you know there's more people of of that so i would i would say that um Personally, I would say that there's two areas where the Church of Christ needs to get a lot better at, and that is discipleship and evangelism. We don't really evangelize much anymore. The Churches of Christ are not converting new people into the into the church very often at all. Not at all. Our churches are shrinking. They're not expanding. I hate to say that. I'm not proud of that. But we just don't get out there and evangelize people and baptize them. That's kind of rare. Churches of Christ just don't do that very very much. Sadly, now I'm sure there's some that do, but the ones I've been associated by and large, it's kind of a church for the people that are that are already there. And you're going to shrink unless you got a, a very fertile congregation that's having a bunch of babies. But you're just going to shrink if you don't bring people in. All right. So, but here's what I want to say. These are two areas where we in the main Line Church of Christ. This is where we struggle. Discipleship. We've gotten lax in our discipleship, and in we've gotten lax in our evangelism. Now, this is where you come in, ICOC. You guys tell me that you're good at those two things. Help us. Help us out. We can help you. We can help you with all the rational, you know, the all the academic stuff. We can help you with the good theology. We can help you with some Bible scholars and church historians. We can provide all the all the uh, intellectual stuff that you can you know that you can manage. But we need some we we got some things to offer, but we need to receive some help too. So it's going to be a give and take, and I think that we're going to make each other better if we can uh, bring our two bodies uh, back together and heal this schism from the 1980s. Closing out, I'm going to ask one more question. Um... Let's see. The one that just came in is what is the Church of Christ's view? If you know, maybe I'm not sure you're aware of Kip McKean, who used to who started the, you know, ICOC, uh, him and a number of other individuals, but uh, his sold out, he calls it the sold out discipling movement. Any take on that? Uh, yeah, we, my, have a, my... we have our own take on it, but <laughs> we wondered what your take was. Uh, no. Kenny, you never heard of Kip McKean. <laughs> so um, now contextualize this, Steve. I, I, I've heard the sold-out discipleship movement, but what, what's the the spin that you're trying to get me to grasp mentally here? He, he has a new church. It's not a, He calls it the uh, International Christian Church, I think. Yeah, right. It's the sold-out movement. And they basically are branched off from the ICOC, and they're uh, – we, we believe in error on a number of er- areas, um, doctrinally off. Uh, and then they're more, they're more, more exclusive, uh, in, in an unhealthy way. But I didn't know if you were yeah. familiar with it. Yeah. I, you know, I, I am not familiar with, with his, uh, his new movement. So, uh, Kim McKean's kind of hard to keep up with because, uh, he had, he's had different, uh, sort of several different rebirths throughout his career. Uh, you know, and he he's evolved over the over the years. So I, I'm not where he, I'm not sure where he's at now. Um, yeah. So I, I'll just keep it at that. I don't want to slander a person because I don't know him. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I do know that uh, he's burned some bridges that probably before this life is through, uh, some of those bridges need to be healed 
just for the sake of everybody's souls. Yeah. But him too. I mean, I don't think this is a matter of, uh, you know, everyone heals, but him, I, I think he needs to repent and he needs to uh, try to uh, put back together some of these bridges that he burned over the years. Um, I don't know him. And, uh, but I have supervised students who have studied the movement. And so I've read about the, the damage that was caused. Um, but I can't comment on what precisely uh, he's teaching as orthodoxy today. I, I don't really know. Okay. Thank you very much. Uh, for anyone still on, I do want to let you know that, uh, you know, we're going to address that um, next week in the history of the ICOC. We will speak into that uh, somewhat. Kay, I asked her to speak into that somewhat. Uh, there's a lot to cover there. But Dr. Dowdy, we're going to conclude it this time. We want to thank you so much for just your heart, your your brotherhood. Uh, we just appreciate it. We we do count you as a brother and want you to know that and accept that. We believe that we wouldn't have you teach, you know, at our congregation. I mean, I guess we would. We've had plenty of people teach if they're experts on a topic. But the reality is we we just appreciate you. I know hearing from Ken who has just left to lead church in Sacramento, our church in Sacramento, which incidentally has a partner church, uh, Church of Christ. And the old Church of Christ up there donated their building to our church in Sacramento. Uh, did, one of them did, um, can't remember the name of it, but so they, and we s- sort of merged their, their disciples, their people merged with ours up there. It was an older congregation. So, and I've heard that in a couple places in the United States that that is going on, that churches of Christ and international churches of Christ are merging, uh, because the foundational doctrine is right and the heart is to make disciples of all nations and change the world. And so I, I know the heart of the church of Christ is that. Maybe we can talk more, I know with Rafa, about some of these, um, foundational issues to try to figure out how to do more and more connecting. And, you know, God's always pleased with that. And we want to, we want to save a lost world. So thank you again. And uh, we look forward to seeing you at some other points. We'll have to get up to Pepperdine when they open up and, and, and hang out. I know I will. Well, Steve, uh, Tim just said that you bestowed uh brothership upon me. And so I, I gladly receive it. And uh, let, let's have a, a, a raccoon John Smith handshake here. <laughs> I'm really gratified by the uh, by the comments there. Keep in mind that when the when the Zoom session stops, the chat will go away. So if you if I don't uh, respond to you, it's because I I wasn't able to get through the chats. So feel free to email me at my Pepperdine email address. I'm easy to find on the web, and I'll be happy to respond to you uh, in the next day or two over email. But God bless you. This was a privilege, one of the great privileges of my church life to be able to share these two Wednesday nights with you. God bless you. Thank you so much. I'm very gratified by the comments I'm seeing in the chat. And uh, have a great rest of your week. You've just listened to the West Side Podcast. For more information about our ministry, please visit thewestsidechurch.com or laicc.net.